0: Um, any suggestions for what year that was? Extra cookie for anyone that can name it. Ow, oh, you are so good. Uh, did, maybe someone else said that as well. I'm not so good on the, on the right ear. Yes, the year is 1979. Come with me to Christmas Day 1979. It's 6 a.m. in the morning, poss- possibly earlier, and I'm 11 years old, and I'm downstairs opening my big present, hoping that it's a... Coming. Big track. I'd seen it on TV in the cool ad with the American kid. The latest in technology that every preteen nerdy boy wanted. And that's me, aged 11. With my brother James. Feel with me the anticipation as I rip off the wrapping paper. I open the box, lift out the polystyrene the whole unboxing experience, lift out the instructions, the stickers, I'll deal with those later, and I lift out Big Track and put it on the carpet in the front room. And then I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I realize Santa has forgotten the batteries. Now what you need to know about 1979 is Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister. People wore flares, and shops did not open on Christmas Day or Boxing Day. So that's right, I had two days with my dream come true, cutting-edge technology, amazing, non-functional, lump of benign plastic, called big track, batteries not included. Of course, aged 11, I did my best. I'd do the laser beam noises as I walked around the house, carrying it from room to room, do, 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 made fake wheel turning noises, just imagining in what it might actually sound like if it was working. But it did take two days until I could actually get batteries and enjoy the full experience. By the way, when I did get the batteries, I was able to treat my parents to seeing Big Track in full operation, morning, noon, and night for the rest of the school holidays. I wonder if you ever feel like that story in your spiritual life. We have this idea of being a saintly person, a good person, a a Christian. We might even come to a stimulating meeting, or we read a, a great book, or we're inspired by a friend, and we catch the vision of what something could be. We might feel, yes, I kind of want to be more like that. And so we start putting the steps in place so that we can become that saintly person. We start going to the spiritual gym. We're doing a bit of Bible reading now. Maybe we're praying in the car. We start helping the old ladies across the street, working towards this vision of this incredible spiritual life. But the thing is that we, in that moment, get caught up in doing activity in order to find the results. And invariably, just like my big track, the results are disappointing. We get trapped into this cycle of trying harder to do better at being good. Sometimes following Jesus feels like getting a big track for Christmas, batteries were not included. And we have this sense, the sense of what it might feel like to have that living, vibrant connection with God, something that's up close and personal. But easily, so easily, it can feel like having a great toy that doesn't have any power. And actually, that experience can feel even more disappointing than not having the toy in the first place. So today, we kind of want to think about that idea of having the batteries included what that looks like in living a life of faith and as Luke said this is the second part of our series looking at the Holy Spirit and if you missed the first one you can catch up online and so we want to think about what does it mean to have the presence of the Holy Spirit who is God with us like the batteries of our life in finding out about God. 2,000 years ago, a man called Paul wrote a letter to a collection of churches in Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey, to help them think through these same ideas. We read through some of the passages already before the worship time. And he begins his letter to them, reminding them of their Jewish inheritance and something which is called the law. And law refers to the code of following God written in the Old Testament before Jesus it includes things like uh, the Ten Commandments Uh, and if you go into any traditional church you'll find by law the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer have to be written either side of the communion table in fact it used to be that you had to you had to be able to memorize both before you could become a member of the church the law also included the teaching of a man called Moses. He's the guy that went up Mount Sinai and came down uh, with the Ten Commandments written on two tablets. And his, his law is actually the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament. And the law also covers all of the detail that's unpacked in those first five books of the Bible. And it's offered to us as a way of taking steps closer towards God, to, to connecting with God, to discovering what it means to know or experience who God is. But there are problems with this idea of law when it's used to measure our relationship to goodness and our drawing close to God. Here are some problems. The first is, there are too many laws. If you add up the Ten Commandments, everything Moses said and all the commandments laid out in the first five books of the Bible, you end up with 613 different rules to be followed. I've just been on a training course with work, and they've just drilled into us as managers that in our teams, it is pointless having more than three goals. So they've spent two days basically beating into us that three goals is the most that any group of people could possibly give their focus to. If you add more goals than that, all that happens is people just forget what they are. So the law, as a way of drawing close to God, has 613 of those. So we're probably able to remember three, and then 610 are sort of blurry and in the distance. Perhaps you should revise the code. We should just have the the three commandments. Pick your favorites. Or, you know, the TED Ted Talk highlights of things that Moses said. You know, trim it down a bit into a 15-minute message, the kind of thing that, you know, we can remember a bit more snappy. So the problem with the law as a way of drawing close to God is that none of us have a chance of engaging with all of them because there's just too many. The second is that the law is too hard, partly because there are so many rules And it doesn't matter who you are, you're still going to inevitably have an experience where you don't get them all right. And also, the nature of law as a way of being good or pleasing God kind of sets us all up to fail. If you keep the speed limit 95% of the time, you're still breaking the speed limit the 5% of the time that you go over. So even though we can we can sort of try and follow a rule and keep it, it's sort of inevitable that we will at some point get it wrong. And in one sense, it doesn't even matter whether we're agreeing with, you know, the Ten Commandments and the Moses and the bits in the Bible, and we're saying that's law. In a sense, all of us have a code or a standards that we feel are important, and all of us will at some point or regularly fail to meet even our own standards. No matter how we frame this idea of law, keeping rules in order to be right with God, then we are always destined to fail because it's hard to do it. The very nature of laws is it feels like they are an impossible challenge that we can never quite pass. The third problem with the law is the law themselves don't help us. In another book of the Bible written to the church in Rome, the same writer, Paul, who wrote Galatians that we read uh, earlier, says this, the law is like a criticizing husband who is always right but never helps. If, if, if you've got a husband here, maybe you just want to give him a stare right now. <laughs> the law is like a criticizing husband who's always right but never helps. Don't you hate it when somebody kind of points the finger at you, sort of judges you in that judgy way? They're not helping. They are condemning. And perhaps the really annoying thing is maybe they're even right. And all, all that's happening is you are being further crushed and further condemned and convicted of where you are. So does having lots of laws help us to genuinely be more holy I don't think it does because the laws themselves do nothing to enable us to keep the code they represent and just to make it one step even worse the fourth thing about law is this there's something about a rule that makes you want to break it there's something about a rule that before you knew the rule and then when you know the rule Something in you may well rise up. Now, this might just be me, but this absolutely is, uh, uh, re- applies to me. So when you see that sign that says, by order, do not walk on the grass, you are probably perfectly happy on the path. The path is really nice. I love this path. It's a great path. I will follow it to the place that I'm going to. But you see that sign that says, do not walk on the grass. And you're thinking, who's telling me not to walk on the grass? <laughs> I can if I want. There you go. What are you going to do about that? <laughs> or you're at the checkout, and it, and it says eight items or fewer. And you think, yeah, well, I, I'm busy. I've got, I know I've got nine items, but I'm really busy, OK? So I'm, that rules for other people. That's a guideline, OK? I'm going to go through with my nine items in the eight items or fewer checker. Uh, Of course, when you're there with three items and the person in front of you has nine items, who does he think he is? Can't he see the rule? Hey, eight items. He's blatantly got nine in his basket. Or it's a bit like this. Sometimes I cycle to work. And when you cycle on the roads in York, sometimes you see how badly some people drive. I mean, it's, it's... It's dreadful. Honestly, sometimes it's not safe to be around some of the crazy motorists that are in York. It's dangerous just getting from A to B. Sometimes I drive to work. Have you seen those cyclists on the road? (laughs) The way they just drive around, as if they owned our roads. Honestly, they are an absolute menace on our roads. See, the problem is the laws also provokes something very deep in us, a deep rebellion that wants to react, that actually it's as if we were more holy before we heard the law or the rule, and the hearing of the rule actually makes us less well behaved. Laws seem to provoke us in a way that can actually make us feel even further away from God. You were feeling fine until you heard that one of the ten commandments that said thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's iphone you were perfectly happy with your phone and then you heard the commandment and now you can't stop thinking about why's luke smith got a better phone than me (laughs) who's he wonder how much he earns oh i wonder if he will swap phones with me if he's a christian he probably would Let's pause. We've got more, but I'd love you to chat at the table about this idea of rules, okay? And what I'd love you to chat about is this. If you could change any rule, what would you change, okay? Anything's up for grabs. You've only got two minutes, so say hi to the people on your tables. You can change any rule. What would you like to change? Off you go. Great. Hey, I hope you came up with some things. Let's hear three, okay? Quick, 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 don't give us a long summary, give us a short summary. Let's hear three rules that you'd like to change. Uh, Pete wants to change the law of gravity. Um, Mine was similar. I wanted to change the rule that chocolate makes you fat, uh, which is also a change to fundamental physics. Um, Anyone else? No queuing in air, that's a very specific one, darling. Okay. In the Bible, the contrast to this idea of law is the word grace, the idea of grace. And grace is when God gets involved in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Uh, by the Holy Spirit, grace is when God does in us what the law in and of itself cannot achieve. John, uh, John chapter 1, it says this, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, it's tempting to see kind of law as bad and grace are good, but actually both are good. It's like a journey that we go on. Uh, Paul, who wrote our book that we're reading, Galatians, said this, the law is like your guardian. The the word is like nursery school teacher. The law is like your guardian put in charge to bring us to God. So there's something about The law that sort of helps us understand that we have a need for God. That maybe we have, uh, that it's not as easy as we think. That we are people who are um, broken inside to such an extent that even when we hear the rules, we actually respond badly to them. The law sort of educates us in the fullness of understanding how much we need grace from God through the Holy Spirit. When I think about this transition from law to grace, a person I've been reading about recently, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, absolutely has this story in his life. Wesley was born in 1703 and uh, he, at age 35, was trying his hardest to work hard, hard, hard to please God. His life was busy so that he could make himself a righteous man. He, he, uh, he was the minister of his church and he preached regularly, but he, he felt he didn't have the faith to carry on doing his preaching. He, so bad was he working, so, so many hours was he working that he'd made himself um, ill. And he wrote to his friend, Peter Boer, and he said, I feel like I need to give up what I'm doing. I cannot continue like this. And he said, I don't have any faith in my heart to do what I feel called to do. His friend Peter wrote back and gave him just this one line of advice. Speak faith until you have it. John took his friend's advice, and the next day he was doing a prison visit, as he often did. And he spoke faith in Christ to the prisoner that he was speaking to. And the prisoner was converted while he was there. John was absolutely astonished at the transformation in this man that he saw He was there to help that man, and he'd been struggling for years to find that sense that God might come into his life. He was a man incarcerated in prison for bad deeds, and he speaks to him about what it means to know Jesus, and his eyes are open, and he's converted instantly. John still struggled. He didn't know how he could enter into this thing he was seeing happening in others around him. He still felt dull, he still felt like he was struggling and having to work hard to follow God, and he couldn't even pray for his own soul, his own relationship with God. The next month, um, uh, he, um, one morning, woke up early and he opened his Bible and turned to the promise that said this, there are given unto us exceedingly great, precious promises, even that you should be partakers of the divine nature." He wrote in his journal that he thought about that verse all day. And then in the evening, a a friend, uh, he felt he was reluctant to go, but a friend persuaded him to go to a meeting in Aldersgate. At the meeting, somebody was reading from Martin Luther's preface to the epistles to the Romans. It doesn't sound that very exciting, actually, uh, as a book. And that's what they used to do in those days. They'd just get out books in meetings and read bits to each other. So he'd been dragged along to this meeting to read a translation of of a dry German theologian's introduction to a book about another book that somebody else had written. It doesn't feel like it's going to be a classic story, but it was. Um, uh, Wesley says at uh, quarter to nine in the evening, he writes in his own words, whilst he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, that's the book that's being read to him, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he'd taken away all my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and good uh, sin and death. It, for Wesley, this was an utter transformation. That it was not the proliferation of good deeds that drew him close to God, but it was actually welcoming the work of God into his life through the Holy Spirit which actually transformed him, and then, as the rest of his life testified, made him able to be a person who did many good deeds. Wesley was transformed through that. He became this incredible preacher. He traveled the country on horseback, traveling often more than 20,000 miles uh, a year, and the Methodists who came in his name actually transformed Britain and America. And all that came through this initial experience when he understood that it was about the grace of God through the Holy Spirit, not trying hard to keep as many rules as possible. When Paul, the person who's read the Bible verse, wrote the, written the Bible verses that we've read um, today, describes the work of the Holy Spirit, he uses a picture of fruit. And you've got, you've got a, a drawing of it on your tables, um, and we read some of it earlier. He says this. The fruit... "...of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have killed the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit." He's using this visual picture of a plant to describe what it might be like to experience increasing measures of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, I'm not much of a gardener, but I can see a few things from this illustration. The first is this. Fruit is actually just the natural outworking of a tree being healthy. Trees on the whole don't strive or stress or strain to produce fruit. It happens by natural processes. They don't have to read the book that says that no fruit's bad and it should be avoided. And be, have lots of fruit, you'll be accepted as a tree and loved by your peers and those that are around you. They don't read top tips books on how to produce food, 10 steps to more apples or bananas, the easy way. Trees just naturally blossom and form fruit because they are healthy. If you like as a picture, because goodness, the Holy Spirit, is working through them, producing fruit. That's the picture that Paul wants to give us. A healthy tree naturally produces fruit in abundance. The st- come in. Come <laughs> The second obvious point is that the fruit that the tree produces is not for itself. The fruit that a tree produces is actually given away. And actually, our lives are simpler if we only focus on ourselves. But if we focus on others, then the good life we try to lead actually is one where we're endeavoring to produce fruit from our lives that might benefit other people, those we love, those we live with, those we work with, those people that we see in the city and around us that we interact with. When we're open to other things and people, actually life gets harder, and so actually producing fruit is more important. Um, That annoying person at work that we find really difficult, and we need to find grace in order to To love them and to accept them as we should do or the demands and pressures of family life or friends or whatever it might be, fruit is something that's not produced primarily for the self but is given away for the benefit of others. And actually, it's worth pausing and just thinking how many problems in our society or in our world might be remedied or significantly changed if it was the nature of people that we all sort of gave away an abundance of good things, of fruit, to others? How many problems are caused, in a sense, just by selfishness or self-interest or a withholding of what we've got, just keeping uh, what we've got to ourselves? And law tends to focus on the negative Traits. It focuses on the fault, it focuses on the error, it focuses on the negative thing. But fruit is more engaging because it focuses on the positive outcome. It focuses not on yesterday, but on today and what tomorrow could like. Law focuses on how much we failed. The fruit focuses on how much grace... God has put in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Now, it's been said that there are only two challenges in this life, our own lives and everyone else. If we could eliminate those challenges, then life would be substantially easier. Paul, the writer of this book that we've looked at, uh, when he writes another book to the churches in Rome, sums up this idea of law and grace through these words. He says, it's like this. Even though I desire to do good, uh, even though the desire to do good is in me, I'm not able to do it. And so I find that this law is at work. When I want to do what is good, what is bad is the only choice I have. My inner being delights in the law of God, but I see a different law at work in my body. A law that fights against the law which my mind approves of. And it makes me a prisoner of the law which is at work within my body. What an unhappy man I am. And who will rescue me from this body which is taking me to death? Thanks be to God who does this through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can feel his summary of the challenge. It's a bit like me with my 11-year-old Christmas toy. I can imagine what it might be like, but I'm stuck with the broken, unpowered reality. We both yearn for it should be and could be like this, but we actually feel like, oh, but it, it's more of a grind. It's, it's so hard in the reality of what it is. And he throws out the key, which is Jesus. He's saying in some way that's incredibly hard to understand, I guess, he's saying the life and death of Jesus is the transformative key to this. He's the one that allows us from pivoting to how many laws have we kept to please God, to how much free grace through the Holy Spirit can we receive to be changed by God. Well, in a minute, we're going to think at our tables, and I try to think, what's, how can we sum this? How can we make this practical? The danger of this talk is that we go away with seven steps that we all need to keep in order to live in grace, and that would be ironic, wouldn't it? And I thought there's two things we could all focus on, two things that could encourage each of us. And the first is this, let's focus on the fruit. Let's focus on the fruit. That means we focus on the positive, not the negative, on the outcome, not the problem, on other people, not just our own self-needs, on what could be not on what should be, on what's possible with God, rather than what's hard without God. We focus on today and the future, not the past. Grace, not rules. Focus on the fruit. And the second is ask God for help. We could make fruit into a set of laws. I must try harder to be fruitful, and we'd be back in law-type thinking. And so the key is it has to be I want to invite God through his Holy Spirit to enable these things to be in my life so I ask God for help an invitation to the Holy Spirit to make that possible to achieve in my life what rules alone cannot amen